You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 107. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You've reached another Local Maximum. We have... We have a very local maximum today. I'd say this interview is peak local maximum, but that would be a contradiction in terms, wouldn't it? Uh, It's another Bayesian episode, but this time I'm going to kind of really push on it and challenge my mental model of probability by talking to an economist about the ideas put forth in Ludwig von Mises' 1949 treatise, Human Action. Now, as you know, uh, a lot has happened since 1949, but there are a lot of ideas here that are very relevant and that I need to contend with as I've been basically preaching the gospel of Bayesian inference for the last however many years. So first, let me backtrack a little bit and tell you about how I got so into Bayesian inference in the first place. I was in grad school at NYU, and we're going to actually talk about this in the show, Uh, and and this is even before I took the machine learning class in the computer science department. I was taking data mining in the business school of all places, and guess what? I was pretty good in that class. It kind of, it revolved around, uh, you might have guessed it, you know, solving practical problems for businesses using machine learning techniques, data science techniques. So I started thinking more deeply into what we were doing. I was asking a lot of questions. You know, how do we know that a certain technique will work? Um, you know, or at least how can we tell what strategy is reasonable? Like, you know, which, which has the most chance for success? And I remember boiling it down to a very simple problem. I always use some kind of junk food or dessert in my examples for some reason. I've been doing this for many years. I don't know exactly why. Um, but as the scorching hot summer of 2010 came around, and that was a hot one, so it was 2011, uh, I started thinking about ice cream. And I imagined that I owned an ice cream shop in the East Village where I lived at the time, and uh, say I had it for many years. And over those years, I collected lots and lots of data on which types of ice cream people would buy, whether it's you know vanilla or chocolate or cookies and cream, that's really the best, cookies and cream. I mean, come on. Um, and also assuming that the, the preferences don't change much over time. Let's say I had a very good idea of what percentage of people in that neighborhood want each flavor. Uh, I can just say that's what you know East Villagers want, or at least the East Villagers that like walk by the store and, 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 and want to grab a few scoops. But then I thought, you know, okay, let's say I open up a new store. And this ice cream store is going to be in the West Village now. And this neighborhood, if you know New York, has a whole, it's nearby, but it has a whole different group of people who might have very different preferences. And so I asked, what, if anything, can I say about the proportion of people who want vanilla, say, uh, at this new store versus the old store? Can I say it's going to be the same as the old store? Or can I literally say nothing about it? Is there nothing that I, I can say? It's a totally new problem. And I realized that the, the probability and statistics theory that I had internalized previously didn't really have anything useful to say about this situation. And that's a big problem. 
That's a shame because these are actually equivalent to the situations we run into all the time in our day-to-day decisions. You know, essentially, one of the things I I say is like is, is talking about an analogy. Is, is the two stores is it a good analogy or a bad analogy? You know, we don't run a fully controlled and repeatable scientific experiment for every little inference and. Uh, and, and and hunch that we want to make in life, uh, you know, because those repeatable scientific experiments, it's the most expensive way to reach a conclusion. It's, it's a very valid way. It's a good way if you really want to test something, if you have the resources. But for most of our decisions, we don't have that. We just have little clues here and there. And so Bayesian inference provided both the key to unlocking problems like the ice cream store problem, and fortunately, it also happened to be the foundation in understanding how large-scale data science and machine learning works. So that, uh, that, 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 that's great news. And so also, these ideas really help untangle the problems and get to the root of the issue. So for example, the ice cream store problem can be boiled down to, do I expect the customers in the new store to behave like the customers in the old store, and to what degree. And for example, you know, a, a Bayesian hierarchical model can help someone use data to quantify this effect and to try to make a good estimate of what that effect is. I talked about these models in episode 98 with Alex Andorra, and they're often used to model elections sometimes. So fast forward to 10 years later, and I've successfully used this way of thinking to solve a lot of problems in engineering and in business, great. But as I start to teach this more and more, I realize that the philosophical and meaningful underpinnings of probability and belief are kind of shaky and continually need to be explored and refined. So probabilistic models and inferences are fraught with danger. When they're done right, you get magical products. You get extreme intelligence, almost superpowers, um, that um, you know that uh, most people don't have. It's competitive advantage, um, and those superpowers can include. I don't look. I don't know if we can create a human brain, but um, <laughs> we've been able to model things like speech and uh, and sight to a pretty uh, a pretty strong degree, which um, gives a lot of like practical applications. Uh, yields a lot of practical applications. Um, but so that's when they're. That's when these. Uh, that's when these are done right, but when probabilistic models and machine learning ones mismanaged uh, with bad assumptions and bad ideas, it can literally, you know, sink a company. And let's not even get started with the government and political use of statistics. So in the interest of helping us wield this superpower correctly today, we are going to talk about the interpretation of probabilistic statements. I have a lot of uncertainties going into this conversation, as is only logical, given that the conversation is partially about uncertainty. Uh, for example, you know, was Mises actually a frequentist, even though the whole his uh, it seems like his theory rests upon individual belief, which seems more Bayesian. Although, you know, when he was writing, it was really before the frequentist Bayesian wars in academia, which is now kind of behind us. So. Again, an, another big question that I have is why did he say that subjective probabilities were meaningless even though we clearly act on them? And then the third question that I had was, you know, finally, uh, what could contending with these ideas mean for my particular approach to problem solving? So we're not going to answer all these questions today. 
um, because these go, the rabbit hole goes very deep. But we're going to jump into the deep end here and we're going to make some serious progress. In Bayesian terms, my posterior beliefs will have lower entropy than my prior beliefs going into the conversation. My next guest is the host of The Bob Murphy Show and also the co-host of the Contra Krugman Economics Podcast, one of the best in my opinion. He holds a PhD in economics from NYU, and he's written on a wide range of relevant social and political topics, including Austrian economics and, of course, the works of Ludwig von Mises. Bob Murphy, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And thanks for coming on to talk about stuff that you wrote 10 years ago and going back into that. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Uh, so we're going to talk about the interpretation of probability today. It's kind of it's a crucial topic for my work in data science and machine learning, but a lot of the techniques that I talk about were just not possible decades ago. So I want to get a sense of how these ideas developed over time. And I know that this is, you know, just a piece of the, uh, just a part of, of a book you read on Mises' human action many years ago. But maybe before we start, you can kind of tell the audience about, uh, you know, uh, more of the work that you're doing nowadays. Like you put out so much, so many, so much articles and content on so many different topics that um, what do you see as your main um, uh, line of, uh, of inquiry uh, these days in 2020? Well, I appreciate that. Um, probably it's, it's fair to say that the, the single thread that goes through most of what I do professionally is that I try to explain economic issues to the layperson. So, you know, a lot of times people email me or come up to me at a conference or something and, and say, hey, you know, I really appreciate that you take really complicated stuff and you, you know, make it in a way I can understand, but it's clear you're not dumbing it down. So the specific things that I've covered um, for many years, I was really uh, hip deep in the, the economics of climate change. So like, you know, looking at the so-called social cost of carbon and how do people come up with those estimates and why you need to be careful and people saying, oh, yeah, carbon tax is an obvious, you know, no brainer solution to this problem. And, you know, just pointing out, well, no, actually, there's a lot there's lots of uh, steps along the way, any one of which could go wrong. Um, certainly, I write a lot about the Federal Reserve and the banking system and how that contributes to the boom bust cycle using the theory that was developed by Ludwig von Mises, who we're going to be talking about in a minute here. Um, and then I guess more recently, I started my own podcast, The Bob Murphy Show, and that's uh, where I was able to interview people, but also talk about other things too. And, and so I'm a, a Christian and I like talking to people about um, the fact that I used to be an atheist. And so I liked explaining how, you know, I, I know, I remember when I was an atheist, I thought this stuff was completely irrational and illogical, but actually now that I'm a Christian, let me show you. Da, 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 da. And so with a lot of this stuff, it's, I, I guess now to update what I'm saying, it's more I want people to just think more clearly about certain issues. And I'm not even trying to change people's minds so much, but usually just show, hey, look, at if you're thinking about it a certain way, maybe there's this other framework or there's considerations you haven't considered before. So just make sure you're keeping account of this stuff, too. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I appreciate when I listen to you and when I read some of your work is that I actually feel like I'm getting an honest assessment of the of the facts on both sides rather than, you know, just someone spiking the football, which is like 90% of, uh, uh, you know, opinion writing out there. Um, 
And yeah, I also appreciate that you did an, uh, an episode uh, on a mathematical topic on, on Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which I find it so hard to do. I try every few months to do a mathematical show, and I'm going to continue to do it. But mm-hmm. it's very hard to do it in the audio format. And I appreciate anyone who uh, who uh, who gives that a shot as well. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I appreciate that. It's funny because that was one where I was post, you know, so I started my podcast and I was worried, you know, you start a new podcast and you're concerned, like, are people going to listen to two episodes and say, oh, this is terrible and it's going to be a public embarrassment. Um, and so, yeah, in the beginning, I was just playing it safe and doing the obvious stuff like interviewing Tom Woods and other libertarian free market people that everyone would be expecting. But yeah, at, at some point, so you know what, this is my podcast and I really want to explain to people Girdle's theorem and cause it's really cool. And I think I know a way to explain it that, you know, people can get it. And so, and that, and a, there was a really good reaction to that. A lot of people were, you know, who, you know, people who are mathematically trained saying, Hey, you did a pretty good job there. That's, you know, that was pretty, pretty accurate. And other people will just, Oh yeah, I never understood that. Cause, cause that was yeah. the thing on that one is I had read, you know, obviously it's very famous and, in, you know, like philosophy of mind and computer science and so people throw that result around a lot. And yet he, so the secondhand accounts would often, in my mind, they were like internally contradictory or not internally, but contradictory across different accounts. And so, you know, and, and, and then so finally, though, was I think I was in grad school and I was in the library at NYU and I found this great math book that really like walked through the actual proof and showed how it worked. And then when I finally, you know, saw it, I was like, oh, okay, this is great. Yeah. Would that be the, uh, the Bopes library at NYU? Yes. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in there as well. Uh, probably no. I was in grad school there in like, let's see, 2009 to 2011. Uh, but in the, you know, in the computer science department, you, I don't know when you were there, but uh, I was probably, there from 98 to 03. Okay. Okay. So if you, if years before, about a decade before, I I I found a lot. Surprisingly, uh, I found a lot of really great books in that library that maybe weren't taught in the courses, but but uh, that I got a lot out of just from uh, just from perusing that library. So um, yeah, that's uh, I'm sure that's true of most college libraries, but uh, uh, a lot of a lot of nooks and crannies in that one. All right. So let's uh, let's get into the main topic. Um, the economist Ludwig von Mises wrote about probability in his text, Human Action, and this came out in the 1940s. I believe it was 49. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wrote the definitive study guide to that, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so let's start here. Why was Mises so interested in probability uh, at this time, and what was he trying to bring to the economics profession that hadn't been there previously? Well, so to understand, first of all, just for your listeners, it's an odd title. Like, why is it called Human Action? So let me just take a moment on that. So this is a treatise on economics. You know, Mises was, you know, an economist. I would argue the greatest economist of the 20th century. Um, and and so the way he viewed the, how can I put this? So as people, as, you know, social scientists began noting the patterns in market phenomena, you know, over the centuries and then, you know, developing what we would now look back and say, ah, yes, the early stages of economics. Um, Mises realized that the, eventually what happened is it, they, they narrowed it down to say, look at this isn't, this isn't biology. It's not chemistry. It's not physics. It's not math. It's not history. What is this? And what it was, was he thought the, the rigorous logical study of purposive behavior, right? So that when people use means to achieve an end, 
And so, and he, he summarized that by saying human action, right? And so that's why that's the, the title of his treatise. And so he's saying what he called praxeology was the, the logical science of action. And then a, a, a specific subset of that, when you assume that there's private property in the use of money, is what he called catalactics. Okay, so... so- how is the, is how is economics usually defined? Um, and I, I hate to use the term like usually, but in the I don't know if you go to an economic econ one hundred and one course in in a college, they they usually don't define it as the the study of you know human action. They they usually say something else, right? Yeah. Well, for one thing. A lot of times they don't bother to define it. You know what I mean? To them, that's like, oh, we're not doing philosophy here. You know, let's roll up our sleeves and you know, and get into the economics. Come on, we all we all yeah. know what we're doing. We're studying how the economy works, and we want to you know reduce unemployment. That kind of, you know, we want to help poor people. Um, so I think there's that element. When I was writing my book, Choice, which was uh, not like literally a study guide, but more of a a distillation of the the main points of human action. So cho- you know, Choice is like a 350 so page book. Whereas human actions, I think 900 plus, something like that. Um, that's right in the opening chapter as I was trying to explain that. And I went and surveyed a bunch of economic, te- either textbooks or like books for the lay person written by economists, a kind of you know, introduction to how economists think. And yeah, some of them, I mean, like the, like graduate level texts, it was funny, like the stuff that I used at NYU when I was a grad student. I mean, they, they just jump right into, okay, here's the production function of the economy and there's F you know, with, with K and L as the inputs and they just jump right into it. They don't bother explaining here's what we're doing in this course of study. Um, whereas the more introductory lower level ones, they'll, they'll often say stuff like economics is the study of how society uses scarce resources to achieve competing ends or something like that, or, okay. or the, the determination of which goods should be produced and how they should be allocated. You know, sometimes you'll see language like that. The ones that I think are are better and closer to the Misesian approach will say something like economics is the study of rational choice or something like that. Okay. So that's similar, I guess, but I, I, yeah, I, I could see the connection there though. Uh, definitely like, Hey, we're making all this stuff. We're accumulating stuff, using stuff, doing stuff. I mean, it's really, it's all, it all boils down to action and choices and, how that works on an individual level and what the, how that works on a, on a group level. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, there are the difference. So, and that's why too, in case your listeners have noticed this, it leads to what's called economic imperialism by which they mean economists instead of staying in their lane and just talking about inflation and the business cycle and, you know, uh, economic growth will then start talking about, the, the dating market, you know, just even that phrase, the dating market, you know, like that's an economic type of, of use or, you know, just going into other disciplines like sociology or criminology, like the economic analysis of crime. And, and you might, you know, there's famous analyses like, oh, well, you know, criminals get a certain amount of utility and by with police enforcement and there's a probability of being arrested and put in prison and, da, 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 da. and so what's the optimal punishment for sure. crime and, you know, that or law and economics. So, yeah, there's a lot of things where tools and techniques that were originally developed to explain a consumer with a limited budget seeing an array of prices and having preferences and figuring out how do I spend my money to maximize utility in the marketplace like that framework what if instead I want to you know analyze a politician trying to decide what should my platform be to maximize my votes in the next election and that's what's called public choice theory 
right? right so, right. Or, or, you know, the economic analysis of crime doesn't assume criminals are crazy nut jobs just going around murdering people and robbing banks because, you know, they have these impulses and they can't control. No, it's a very rational, well, the criminal engages in a cost benefit analysis and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but whether or not one endorses and some of those things give me the creeps, to be honest with you, some of those, especially like people looking at the so-called dating market as economists, that, that just gives me the creeps. But in any event, where that comes from is this idea that really what economists, you know, the, the, the techniques economists use to explain consumer behavior or to explain the owner of a firm and how he makes decisions based on, you know, the technology he has at his disposal and the input and output prices that those techniques are applicable beyond just the narrow sphere of what we commonly consider economic decisions, you know, and, and so that, that's, that's the, and that's why Mises thought the the proper scope for what he was doing was not just a book on economics. Like he didn't just call his book, the, the economy or something. He called it human right. action. Cause he realized that's actually the, the foundation. And then once he lays the foundation, now he's going to home in on, you know, specific assumptions about, let's say, you know, purposive behavior in the context of a society with private property and the use of money. And that's what we mean by, you know, a market economy. Yeah. So he, he, did, he tackles the idea of probability pretty early on in the book. It was like, it's chapter mm-hmm. six. Your study guide uh, corresponds to the chapters in the, in the book, right? Yeah, I'm uh, sorry. I didn't read, I didn't read human action. I only read parts of your study guide. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's correct. And yes, yeah, so yeah. it's page 107 is where he starts in the scholars edition. But since, like I say, the human action is a really big book that that's still relatively early, even though some people might say, geez, he doesn't get around to it until page 107. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was his interest in okay, this? Yeah. I should also point <laughs> I just, out, like, yeah. I should also point out his, his brother was a mm-hmm. uh, professor in um, in probability theory in Harvard. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, this is impressive. Uh, I just realized you, I almost went 14 minutes without answering your the question you asked me. <laughs> That's uh, right. We got into some interesting stuff. <laughs> um, so, so th- where I meant to go with this originally when I was giving you that long-winded answer was to say that you know the, apparently Murray Rothbard, who's a big fan of Mises, when he uh, he tells the story that when he heard Mises was coming out with a new book, you know, namely Human Action, and Rothbard said, "What's it about?" and the person said, "Everything," right? So, the, the, you know, <laughs> this this book really does. I mean, Mises gets into all kinds of stuff, including like, oh, how it was that ain't, that Rome fell because of the price controls. You know, that's really you know that kind of stuff. You know, what I mean, so he really just speaks about all kinds of stuff in this book, and um, so yeah, as you say, Mises' brother Richard you know, is an accomplished, you know, published mathematician and, and did work on this. And so here, let me be uh, transparent with you. I'm not an expert on like Richard von Mises' thought and exactly how, you know, his views differ from Mises. But I I have heard people, you know, giving lectures on this topic say that, yeah, even though Mises you know, didn't come right out and and say my brother's wrong on this, that, you know, that's that's partly who he was rebelling against here. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought he was, see, I always thought he was like using his brother's work. Now you're saying that he's kind of saying he's, it's kind of a little sibling rivalry going yeah, on. I, 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 th- I mean, I'm not trying to be evasive, but I think it's actually kind of really nuanced. Like Mises yeah. borrowed some of it. Like Mises certainly benefited from having read his brother's work, but he actually, he disagreed on some points, but I get okay. I, I shouldn't, I don't want to say, cause Richard said this and then Ludwig said that, like, I don't know them well enough, but I do know. <laughs> Yeah, certainly, I don't either. I'm just yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mises was aware of his brother's work, and that certainly influenced it. But I have definitely heard you know experts on this say 
that that Mises did differ from his brother on, on on some of these points. But in any event, so it's you know it as we say like well gee why is this stuff on probability in here? It's just because Mises, I mean, he's given like the whole philosophical underpinning of how do we you know like what's the logical uh, status of economics? You know, what's the epistemological foundation of economics per se? And partly he's doing that because nowadays some of it might seem quaint and like what what are you wasting all your time doing? Is just you know tell me how the business cycle functions or operates? What's going on here? It's partly because Mises is coming out of a tradition where there was like logical positivism and then also there were Marxists who would say things like, oh yeah, there's, you know, there, there's bourgeois economics, but that, you know, rests on faulty axioms. And if you have the proper, you know, understanding of things, you'll see that the, the theorems of David Ricardo and such are nonsense. And so Mises had to really, you know, first of all, just establish the philosophical underpinnings of what he was doing, because otherwise somebody could just appeal to polylogism and say, oh, well, there's multiple logics and yeah, yeah, your theories, you, you economists are, are true in your logic, but not according to our superior, you know what I mean? So that's partly why Mises has to go through all this stuff that might look to an outsider like it's philosophy and not economics. And so it's not surprising that in that context, part of what he talks about is the nature of probability because, and, and so, you know, part of what he's doing here is he's trying to establish and through his discussion he typically couches it in terms of the business person and, you know, and so like what types of probability or, or, you know, these, these classifications that, you know, I guess you and I are going to talk about here in a minute, um, Max, that, you know, if, if a business person knows that a certain percentage of his uh, produce will rot in the warehouse, you know, what, 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 how does that affect his behavior and, and so forth? Like, is that gambling and, you know, stuff like that? And what, what does it mean when you take out insurance stuff like that? So that's, right. that's part of the connection and why he goes through the trouble of laying this stuff out is because it does overlap and have implications for how an economist is going to deal with stereotypically economic issues. Yeah. I find that most, most of the difficult decisions in business and life are not like, oh, I'm going to invest this amount and then this is going to be my rate of return. It's, it's no, like I'm going to do this thing and then that changes the probabilities of what might happen. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I still don't, I, st- I still don't know what my risk reward and now, uh, uh, um, trade off should be. And, um, I'm taking this, I'm making this decision because I think, Hey, it's probably going to put me in a better position where a better outcome is more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing so, that I should probably mention that just occurred yeah. to me. Another reason for all of this and, and the the detail he goes into on this stuff is that originally economic theory, certainly in the 1800s and early 1900s, was developed primarily in the context of certainty. You know, so in other words, the extent that you would try to mathematically model something or not even mathematically, but like formally model something, you know, an economy, have like a little simple toy economy with, right. oh, there's, you know, there's a wheat sector and there's a, you know, or let's say a corn sector and then there's uh, traded goods and blah, 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 it, it, those sorts of things. Usually everything was pinned down in, in definite, you know, deterministic in the model and that's how you get certain right. results, like, you know, to show well, them. I, the, yeah, the, the, the farmer knows that if they, they plant crop A instead of crop B, they know they'll make more money. Mm-hmm. So obviously they'll go to crop A. Yeah. Or just to show the benefits of, inter, of you know, free trade internationally and things right. like that with so, so-called comparative advantage. Those demonstrations are all using, you know, they're deterministic. There's no uncertainty. Um, so lots of the standard results in economic 
science or, or theory were done in a, in a context of certainty. And, but then in the 20th century, at some point, um, certainly the forties and the fifties, economists started taking more seriously the issues of uncertainty and how do we deal with that? And often what would happen, particularly among those economists who were more um, mathematically fluent and who liked to express their economic uh, theories in the language of, of formal math and Mises wasn't one of them, by the way, that he had a lot of problems with that enterprise. But what they would often do is just, it was basically the same kind of framework. It's just, they would introduce random variables. And so, yeah, and the agent, instead of knowing exactly what the market price was going to be next year and then optimizing to maximize his utility function, instead would say, okay, well, there's going to be a distribution of possible prices, but I know right. what, you know, the mean and and standard deviation and higher moments, blah, 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 the distribution are. And so then I'll optimize the X, you know, the ex expectation of my, you know, redefined utility function that takes into account uncertainty that, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, so what's it, wrong yeah, with so, that? Well, I mean, there's lots of things we could get into, but I think this isn't just Mises, but the, but the general Austrian concern with that is you've just kind of pushed the problem back one step. So it's like, yeah, you're admitting people, aren't omniscient, but you do assume that they perfectly know the structure of the world. And, you know, so yeah, they know exactly every outcome that might happen and they have the correct probabilities to assign to it. So it's still like an equilibrium framework. There's no genuine surprise or learning going on in those models. It's just, ah, I see. So, yeah, so in other so words, it's, it's not really grappling with the problem of in the real world, people aren't like the things in the, you know, these people in the models that know what's going on with certainty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, I talk a lot about this sh on this show about uh, the objective view of probability or the frequentist view and subjective probability, which is sort of the, a degree of belief and mm -hmm. how likely I think a certain event is going to happen. And I sort of deal day to day in subjective probability, which is why I kind of feel the need to contend with what uh, Mises had to say about it. Um, but would you say this corresponds to what Mises called uh, class probability and case probability? It's it's similar. So let me I'll just briefly lay it out. Like I, if I were just teaching this to a you know an undergrad class or well yeah probably even in a graduate level class because this gets pretty deep. But go for it. Um, and then, yeah, so there is, it's similar, but I don't think he's he's like making the distinction along the same fault line, as it were. So, yeah, when Mises discusses this, he's got class probability versus what he calls case probability. And for class probability, he says, you know, there's some events where, or you know, there's, there's a whole class of phenomena, and we think we know certain facts about the whole class. So, for example, for a certain city over the, period of a year, we're pretty sure we know how many people are going to die, you know, of that. We just don't know which one. So all we can say about any individual person in the city is they are a member of this broader class. And we think we have some knowledge about the behavior of the class as a whole. Okay. So, so would, would he also apply that to like a dice roll where it's like, you know, Hey, I, I know it's like, you know, one sixth for each side. Uh, I just don't know how much any particular roll of the dice we can't predict what it's going to be, but we do know the overall structure of, you know, or any casino game for that matter. Yeah. I think he, I think he would say that. Yes. And then he said in contrast, in, so the way you remember that of course is a class probably I mean we know information about the whole class and then case probability gotcha. is more like about a, a unique historical case. 
And he's saying here, um, you know, you can have subjective estimates as to, you know, what's going to happen, but really this is a non-repeatable, unique historical event. And so the classic example he uses on this one is a presidential election. And so here he, yeah. sa- he says, so, you know, with, with the class probability, just to back up. So again, you know, a life insurance company can say, oh, there's a million people and we think such and such are probably going to die. And so if we want to charge the actuarially fair premium, plus maybe a little margin for our, you know, overhead and whatever, this is the number we'd have to charge. And as long as we sell enough such policies, then we're not gambling. We're just, you know, we're covered. Whereas he's saying if he only sold a few policies, then they would be gambling. Um, and, and so that's the way he handles that. Whereas he's saying somebody, you know, looking at a presidential election who perhaps wants to wager on it and, or somebody who says, oh, I think there's a 60% chance that Roosevelt is going to get reelected. Mises is saying that's really just a metaphor. There's, there's no real um, uh, scientific precision. There's no real meaning to that statement because it's, you know, like what, what exactly do you mean by that? That, oh, if we held this presidential election a hundred times in a row, then 60 of, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not, what, what does that even mean to say there's a 60% chance Roosevelt's going to be reelected? And you can translate it into statements about, well, how much, you know, I would be willing to pay, put up this many dollars to win a hundred if Roosevelt, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. But even there, because- that mixes in your, 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 uh, you know, your risk preferences or your, your love of gambling per se. And so even two people who had the same, you know, estimates about what was going to happen probabilistically might give different reports as to, you know, what their trade-off would be in terms of how much would you have to put up or would you be willing to put up to win a hundred dollars? So that, that's kind of where he gets in. So there he's recoiling against the, the, the attempts to use mathematical language in there where he thinks it's giving this, this sense of precision where really it's not warranted. So yes, like you say, Max, it totally makes sense to say, oh, there's a one in six chance that if I roll this this thing that I assume is a fair die, a three will come up. But to say there's only a one in six chance that Tulsi Gabbard's going to win the Democratic nomination, that doesn't really mean anything. So I have I take a little I have a little problem with that because, well, hmm, let me see how I'm going to put this. Like it's meaningful for me if I put a number on something. Uh, let's say I want to I I want to you know, fly, I, I want to take a flight. I want to fly to the West Coast. And I know there's like a one in billion chance the flight will uh, crash. Then um, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll, I'll fly to the West Coast. But if I thought maybe there was like a one in 10 that the flight was going to crash, and this is like a one-off type thing, mm-hmm. then I, I, no way, no way I would take that flight. <laughs> so right. um, there, there's sort of, I feel like the number that someone comes up with subjectively is still important. And so I don't know how, like, when, when he says it has no meaning, I don't know. I, 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 you see how I'm having trouble putting those two together? Like, it's, uh, you make decisions off of it. It's certainly um, rational to make decisions off of your subjective opinion as to whether a one-off event is going to happen or not. We do it all the time. Um, and yet the number has no meaning. How could those two things both be true? Let me just try restate it, and then maybe we can grapple more with what the, the difficulty yeah. is. So, and by the way, I, I think I understand what, you, what you're getting at, so I'm not, I'm not saying I, I don't, that I fail to see your, uh, your concern, but let me just try it this way. So sure. again, like to say you roll a die and 
the, the you know to say oh I think the chance of a three coming up is one in six. What does that actually mean? Mises would say oh what it means is the set of all possible outcomes is you know the one two three four five six. We don't know anything about the individual outcomes except that they're a member of that class. We know that one of the numbers has to come up, and so that's what we mean when we say there's a one in six chance that any particular number is going to come up. And he even goes so far as to say that when people, you know, like in textbooks or whatever, when they define that and they throw in the assumption, assume each outcome is equal probable, he even quibbles right. with that and says, no, that's redundant or, or that per se doesn't make any sense. Or, or not that it right. doesn't make sense, but he says it's it's circular argument. He's saying, in other words, there, when you're trying to define what do you mean by to say the probability of this event happening is a one in six, to start your definition of probability by saying assume every outcome has an equal probable outcome, he, you know, you get, you get what I'm saying. Or Mises is saying, wait a minute, you're using the right. notion of probability to define probability. That's a circular argument. So that's right. you know, that, that's I don't know if that helps a little bit to see what where he's coming from when he's talking about what does that mean. So like he can't when, use when probability saying, to define probability. You yes, can't use yeah. so likelihood when, or chances mm -hmm. or any other word. It's I mean it it. You almost have to start somewhere. It's so, it's almost like, hey, uh, you have two possible outcomes or, or multiple possible outcomes, and you're almost trying to find the, yes, the relative likelihood, but I just use likelihood mm -hmm. to define it. So, um, like, for, as far as the plane thing, yeah, I mean, he, uh, Mises would certainly, like, if you said, you know what, I would, that uh, taking the plane from here to L.A. is, is safer than driving a car, and someone said, what do you mean? And you say, oh, well, because I, considering the whole class of airplane flights, especially if we like measure it by passenger mile traveled or something, and, the, and then the number of deaths, and all I really know is that you know my flight is going to be one member of that whole class, There, that's the meaningful sense in which I can say the probability of me dying in the plane crash for this given trip of a given distance is less than if I drove in a car. And, and that's that's certainly true, and that's fine. Um, so Mises wouldn't have a problem with, with that sort of statement, but, but again, things that are, when you start getting more sp specific about it, like, geez, I wouldn't go on a date with that guy with that tattoo and whatever. He just gives me the willies. You know, I, I bet you there's, there's a, not anywhere, anywhere from a 70 to 80% chance that, that guy's going to attack me. Strictly speaking, Mises, that, what does that mean? You're, you're making those numbers up. Like you can't translate that. Whereas with the, with the die roll, I can tell you exactly how I'm coming up with that number and what that really quote means. Whereas to say, oh, gee, I think there's anywhere from a, you know, around a 70 to 80% chance that guy's going to attack me if I hang out with him for the next two hours. I think Mises would say, strictly speaking, that's metaphorical. Like, what, that doesn't even mean anything. There's no way you can translate that into something else. Because again, right. if you try to, you know, you try to do it mechanically, you might say, oh, well, what I mean is over a million repeated trials. My best, you know what I mean, and and it's like, well, well you're not gonna. Right, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, it's so. it's. I, uh, this is something that I'm gonna have to, uh, I'm gonna have to talk about through multiple shows because there's a lot that <laughs> there's a lot to wrap wrap my head around on this one. Um, but I do feel like you know, subjective probability is maybe it's meaningful in that's what a person is basing their decisions off of, you know whether. And by the way, coming up with the subjective probabilities, coming up with those rankings of how likely something is, there's more competent ways to do it. There's less competent ways to do it. You know, someone could just be making up the numbers and then someone could be using Bayes' theorem and doing a very good job at coming up with the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So couldn't, I mean, 
there, there, there definitely has to be a, a way of saying, hey, the, um, the relative likelihood, whether I'm saying, you know, hey, there's an 87.2% chance that so-and-so is going to win the election. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's very, that's, that's almost too specific. Or whether you just say, whether you just break it out into very good chance, good chance, whether you kind of give a qualitative value. Um, I feel like you're a predictor can be kind of calibrated over time to sort of um, make sure that you know you're you're giving um, you know some people are much better at giving subjective probabilities than others, and then you can almost say that objectively because then you kind of aggregate all of them together. <laughs> but but uh, uh, it's um, I don't know if you have any comments on that on, on where I'm trying to go here. <laughs> yeah, out. let me. Um, so again, I mean, this whole, I'm just, I have it in front of me here. I'm just skimming it to see. So yeah, to be clear, I mean, Mises is not denying that, you know, when the future is open-ended and uncertain that, um, you know, pe people have different expectations, if you want to use that word, and that influences right. their current decisions. Right, and that, right. You know, if something seems riskier or, or more dangerous, they might avoid it and whatever. But so what he's grappling though with is he's trying to explain that in, in a logically satisfactory way. And I think the only thing he's resisting is the understandable temptation to use the language, you know, the mathematical language of probability that does make sense when it comes to what he calls class probability and then to apply it in his mind inappropriately to case probability. So again, it's that, that's really what, he, you know what I mean? So in other words, he's just trying to say, yeah, in the real world, and we as economists have to grapple with the fact that the future's open-ended and uncertain, and people, when they act, need to grapple with that. But let's not just impose this framework that really doesn't make sense in that setting and only really makes sense in a very specialized set of circumstances. Okay, so what would be a good example of someone saying, like, using, um, uh, using rules from uh, class probability uh, in the wrong way, or in the way I would put it, like they use a, a frequentist objective probability, and then they apply it in the subjective case, and they do it, um, you know, and, and, and it's, it's not appropriate. Let's, let's try it like this. So it's, it's difficult. If you see somebody, um, you know, one person betting that a, a certain candidate's going to win and someone else not betting that that candidate's going to win, Sure. You, it might, you might be tempted to say, oh, that first guy assigns a higher subjective probability to that person winning than the other guy did. But strictly right. speaking, you can't conclude that. It could be the first well, guy just enjoys gambling more. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? So there's, there's things like that where, again, it's... Um, or the risk aversion. Different, different risk aversion. Right, right, I, right. On predict it, I lost five bucks because I put five bucks on Biden winning... Um, New Hampshire, because I saw that if I won, I would get 250. If he won, I'd get $250. So I thought, why not take the chance? Right. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, yeah, you, you can't, you, you couldn't just observe people's actions and then back out, you know, and what their internal subjective probabilities must actually be. Because, yeah. again, there's always um, another element involved. And it's, yeah, this is a little bit loose, but like the measuring rod you think you're using is itself you know, changeable or malleable. So that's, so I guess that's one way of, of getting at the issue. And so um, it's not that Mises has this alternative framework to give you that's, you know, just as precise as assuming, you know, like using the Bayes 
approach. Um, it'd be his whole point though is you know that's a false sense of precision. If you get okay. what I'm saying, so that I you know what I mean. Like I, I think I get what you're saying. Like oh okay, so he's saying this is well, what does he do? And it's more like he's just trying to clarify and say beware of just taking over this apparatus that strictly speaking really only makes sense in a narrow field of activity and then applying it over here where it really doesn't make sense. That you're okay. Just, you're I, just fooling I, I yourself think I understand. I, I, I think I understand it. Um, although I would, I probably don't understand it enough to explain it on my own. And so that's one of the things that I'm going to probably struggle with for uh, several shows <laughs> going forward. Uh, but uh, but I'll, but I do think I do think I'm starting to get it. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff in terms of like you know Bayesian inference, the idea that we start with a belief distribution over several different hypotheses, mm-hmm. and then we use this data to update those beliefs. Um, something I use all the time to solve real problems. I have to say, wasn't a popular view of statistical inference in the 1940s. Um, but I, I'm, I wonder what he would say about some of the applications that have come up, you know, since he wrote the book. You know, uh, th- some of the things that I've read about, for example, are insurance companies in the 50s and 60s started saying, you know, we actually can insure one-off events or events that uh, against uh, against events that have never occurred before. We as a company can competently come up with a a probability that that event will occur. Um, and so, and then of course, you know, the last last 10, 20, 30 years uh, applied to machine learning and all of these uh, applications that we mm-hmm. we have uh, online, um, whether it's image recognition, audio recognition, or uh, uh, sentiment analysis, all, all that stuff um, is solved on, uh, you know, on a kind of Bayesian engine. So um, I spam detection, one of the earliest ones on, on, on email, probably written in the, in the 80s, uh, would be a very good example. So uh, obviously, you know, it's it's hard to it's it would be hard for Mises to talk about that in 1949 and I I don't I always need to put like a uh, a caveat when we speculate what someone would have said you know you don't know what someone would have said but uh, do you have any thoughts on like how he would have um, reacted to some of those developments? Okay, sure, great question. So I I don't remember him ever talking about what we would think of as like, you know, a Bayesian approach to uncertainty. Um, I asked David Gordon too, who's an expert on Mises thought. And he said he couldn't recall Mises ever talking about that. And like you say, like in terms of the, its use among economists, at least. Yeah. It wasn't really my understanding is it wasn't until like the fifties, at least where that really took off. And so you, it wouldn't have, you know, he wouldn't have had a chance. My guess though, is that, that Mises would have, been very skeptical of it. So the the stuff that we can say, I'll give you an example. So as he's di- uh, discussing these issues in human action, you know, he would say, okay, let's say there's people running a lottery and, you know, they, they sell a certain number of tickets and as, um, as long as, you know, what the, the proceeds they're paying are just, you know, the sum of the, the revenue from the ticket sale, the people running the lottery are not gambling. And he said, however, if they didn't sell some of the tickets, He's saying then they are with respect to those tickets, just like the gamblers are, you know, the people who are buying the tickets. So in other words, it's almost like they themselves are buying those tickets. You know, if you, so if you think through that, you know, it works out, the math works out like, oh yeah. Like, you know, if, if the, the, the pot's a thousand dollars, like the, you know, the winner, whoever gets the winning ticket is going to get a thousand dollar cash prize and you're selling a thousand tickets for a dollar a piece. 
but they only sell 850 of them. Well, you know, then it's, it's as if the, the people running the thing themselves bought 150 tickets because, you know, there's a, if, if, if the winning tickets, one of theirs, then they obviously make a bunch of money. But if they, you know, if somebody, one of those 850 people get it, then they're out $150, which is exactly the position of somebody who bought 150 tickets. So, you know, th- there's that sort of element and, and then he, you know, generalizes to say like with life insurance companies or, you know, property and casualty insurance or whatever, that if, if you sell enough that you've, you know, that there's a sense in which you're covering the whole class. And even there he's, he's admitting in practice, none of this stuff is actually exact for one thing, just because you know how many people died in a certain city over the last, you know, for each of the last 50 years, that actually doesn't tell you how many people are going to die this next year. You know, there could be an oh, earthquake, yeah, of course. there could be an asteroid. You know what I mean? So even there, nothing is actually really the class, but he's just saying we assume we know all the relevant facts for the class as a whole in certain I mean, cases. I mean, the way I say it, to, to translate into my language, I say like all probability is subjective. It's just mm-hmm. some of it is you feel like you have uh, so much information you could treat it as mm-hmm. as uh, solid. Yeah. So, so even there, like, even with all the caveats he says, so if, as long as they, you know, issue enough policies that they reasonably are covered, then that's not gambling. But he said, if they only sold a few policies, then that would be, that, that wouldn't be insurance. That would be, or they wouldn't be just running a regular business. They would be gambling. Just like with the casino, you know, you need a lot of people to be playing for it to just be a business. If only a few people come in, then the casino's gambling too. You know, what right. I mean? it's, they have better odds, but they're still gambling. They're, you know, they're playing a game where the, the advantage is in their favor. But still, you know, like the real, the only reason you can quote be safe as the casino owner is if you have lots of people playing for you know hours at a time. So I think to you know circle back to what you were saying, Max. I'm I'm guessing that yeah, if Lloyd's of London or something is tech, you know, insuring Liberace's fingers or whatever. You know, I've heard cases right, like right. that that Mises would probably just say that was an informed, you know, speculative investment or something. You know, in other words, that he's not saying it's a foolish thing for them to do. They have experts and they make judgment calls. And, you you know, but I, I think, you know, he, he might say it's a wager. He might not call it gambling. And, and so the distinction there being like seasoned experts who go and bet money on horses, you know, they're placing a wager or they're betting Mises reserves that term gambling, meaning when it's pure luck, you know, someone playing roulette or something that's gambling, whereas right. somebody well, betting on a, on a heavyweight fight, that's that's um, betting or, wa- or laying a wager, I think, is the terminology he would use there. Right. I, I could see like a firm doing many one offs where each one is completely uh, unique and they have like analysts look at each one, but maybe they're betting on hundreds or thousands of them. And so. It's still hard to see. It's still hard to call that a class because each one is so unique. But um, right, so yeah, so I get. So I, I think Mises would say, you know, in other words, people say, oh, we're not just betting on the outcome of the presidential election. We have wagers on all the congressional races and blah blah blah, and we're you know we're also betting on all the f- football games and and so you know so it's so yeah from the perspective of the person who believes in subjective probability theory. They would say, as long as our estimates of the actual probabilities aren't too far off, the more of these cases that we throw in, it's like we have a whole class. And so, yeah, it's not gambling. You know, it's 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 a safe business move, especially if we only do it when we think you know the the prices in the market are different from what the subjective probabilities imply is the quote fair price. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think Mises would would recoil from that and just say, no, those are many back-to-back instances of you either gambling or wagering, depending on you know the nature of the specific thing. And so, yeah, you can't say, oh, the the thing that ties this all together is they're all events that have a you know one in ten chance of happening. Since Mises thinks no, for any given case, when you say there's a one in ten chance of that happening, that's nonsense language. You don't render it sensible by putting it into a category of other such equal probable events, I think is how he would handle it. Yeah. Oh, I just, sorry for jumping around, but I just thought of a really good example for the, uh, the presidential election one, because I was at the, uh, the, the Soho Forum, which I understand you're, you're coming and doing a debate there in a, a few months. Is that right? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's April 20th. Okay. So I was there, uh, I don't remember how, how long, it was a few months ago, and they were debating it was it was a very specific like oh should the libertarian party nominate someone like uh Gary Johnson or uh or 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 not should they um nominate someone who's more uh, let's say like ideologically pure mm-hmm. and uh and right so so on the um on the no we shouldn't side was Dave Smith who you've had on your show right oh yeah and the mm-hmm. the head of the libertarian party was on or the chairman was was on the the yes side and one of the arguments that he made which lost him my my vote essentially as the voter was when he was like oh well you know gary johnson got this many uh votes and then look in 1988 ron paul got got fewer votes than that so look it didn't work and that was uh you know that was that was the argument that just made me groan, and then I was like, mm-hmm. "Okay, I'm not." Uh, <laughs> sometimes one bad argument for me kind of sours it. Right. I hate to say it, but that uh, that just did not work for me. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you say it. So Mises also, um, in this very discussion of case probability, then at the end of the section transitions into our historical understanding of events that have already occurred, and so he's saying, you know, when people argue about like, you know, why, you know, why did Napoleon win this campaign or why did this happen or how come the communists took over or whatever, that there's a sense, you know, when you're trying to assign importance to the different factors, you know, some people might be more expert and have better judgment than others, but ultimately, you know, you, it, it's hard to really say, and, and you certainly can't be precise about it or rigorous about it, you know, just nope. as it really doesn't yeah. make sense to say, you know, oh, there's a one in six chance that FDR is going to win. Likewise to say, oh, you know, the, the fact that whatever Napoleon's troops had better equipment is, you know, responsible for 60 percent of his win. And you know what I mean? Like that really very like, what, what difficult does that mean? to. Yeah. You'll never get a definitive answer there. Is, is, I mean, yeah. it's, it's not it's not only let me push. It, I, I believe it's not merely that Mises is saying, how could you ever know? I think he's going to say, strictly speaking, that's nonsense. Like history is what it was. And I, you know, I guess you could say, well, suppose there was an alternative universe where we tweaked one thing two days earlier. But then again, that's kind of, again, like saying, well, what we mean when we say there's a one in six chance of FDR is suppose we ran this election a million times in a row. And again, it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, so. Yeah, yeah. So it's hard to tell what it means. And and yet, (laughs) I, I see your point. And yet, I'm going to say, well, I, you know, we all use uh, subjective judgments and probabilities to try to figure out what is going to happen in the future. Maybe, um, you know, maybe if I 
uh, you know, maybe if I stick to my exercising, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get healthier, I'll lose weight or whatever. And so we, we all kind of have these probabilistic, hey, if I do this, there's going to be X, there's going to be Y outcomes. And if we sort of, I don't see how you could say, well, I can apply this to future things, but I can't apply this to things in the past and say, hey, if I did this thing 10 years ago, then by now, uh, something would have been different. And so if you can do that, then it seems like maybe you can apply it to that same line of reasoning to a historical event. But my only... My only caveat would be that it's just you're not going to be able to come up with a very precise estimate in something like why did Napoleon's troops uh, do well here and not there, et cetera, et cetera. Like you can't come up with a very good – but I I still think there are things you can say about the past like if I, if someone had done this, then that would have happened. Oh, sure, and I don't think Mises – I mean I, I know Mises would agree right. with you. You know what I mean? So he's he's – Definitely, uh, I think was a was a decent historian in his own right. Um, so he's not ob- objecting to that, and Mises has his opinion. You know, he's he said things like, as I alluded to earlier, like in Mises' opinion, oh, the reason the Roman Empire fell, it wasn't because, you know, to just say, oh, because the barbarian invasions. And he said, well, the barbarians had been invading for a long time, and they were always repelled before. Why right. did they succeed this? And Mises thought it was the price controls that the people hmm. fled the cities and actually many of them in the outskirts were starving and they welcomed the con- you know, so-called conquerors coming in cause they were starving and you know, that kind of stuff. So there, yeah, he's making his own theoretical judgment where he says the reason the Soviets did so well against the, uh, you know, the Germans was because of lend lease and whatever. And, and that, you know, without the capitalist engine of the West supplying them, they would have been overrun, you know, that kind of stuff. So again, that's a historical judgment he's rendering. Um, I think what, again, all of, all his point is, is just trying to be rigorous and say, you know, warning his economist primary colleagues primarily don't just adopt this framework that does make sense in a very narrow area and just apply it over here where it really doesn't make sense. It may be a real quick analogy just to try to illustrate this. So it's also common for economists to use what's called utility functions and you know, like, cause they have mathematical models where, Oh, the consumer has a utility function where you plug in, you know, the quantity of sure. apples and oranges, and maybe it's, you know, uh, concave and blah, blah, blah. And so the, you know, given the budget constraint and the prices maximize utility. And, and so then that leads you to believe there's such a thing as utils and it's, it's a cardinal thing. And Austrians typically say, no, it isn't. And, that does, that's not to deny that people in the real world make choices and that they get more utility from one thing than another. It's just saying it's not a cardinal entity. And the analogy I use to illustrate that or motivate that, which I think is intuitive to most people say, I can say who my best friend is and even like who my second best friend is. Like, so I can rank my friends according to how much friendship I have with them. But if I, you know, to say, oh, by how much percentage does my best friend have more friendship with me than my second best friend, you know, that it's, it's not just that, Oh, you can never really know that. It's like, no, that some people would say that's a meaningless question. That doesn't even make sense. That's not. So likewise, the fact that I can say, Oh gee, I wouldn't go swim with sharks, especially if they had laser beams on their heads because that's too dangerous or risky. You know, that's not the same thing as saying, Oh, you know, I wouldn't wager a certain amount to roll a die and I only get paid off if a two comes up because I know the probability of that's only one in six. 
Like, even though those both involve me shying away from something because of the risk involved or the, or the danger or the potential downside, I think Mises is just saying, be careful, don't apply the language of mathematical probability to both of them when it really only makes sense in the one case. Right. Okay. So I think I have one more question on this, which actually I think now, uh, now that we've had this conversation, I could almost, I think I could answer on my own of what Mises or might have said or what, you know, or, or what this line of reading, reasoning might have said, but maybe you can tell me if I'm right or not. So the question I have written here is, you know, what do you think he would have made of the modern use of Bayesian inference in successfully solving problems, say in the engineering world? That's the, that's kind of the world I live in. And that's sort of, you know, I always present Bayesian inference as an amazing tool to solve problems. I never presented it on this program as, you know, the the only way to get at truth, or even mm-hmm. you have to have other ways to get at truth before you even get to Bayes' theorem. So uh, that 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 wouldn't even make sense. But it but it is an incredible tool of sol- for solving a lot of problems faced by by businesses and by engineers. And my guess is, um, you know. even if some so some of some of the problems that I solve are actually class probabilities, they're just very complicated ones. But even if they're they're case probabilities, he would have said that you know, have fun coming up with those numbers to you know uh, post a number to the likelihood of something happening in order to solve problems. Say the likelihood that uh, someone will like a restaurant. That's a lot of what we do here at, at, at Foursquare. Um, but you know, hey there are a lot of caveats you come up with when you come up with these complicated models of, well, a good example that we do, that, that I've done is trying to figure out whether ads are working and whether um, people are caused to go somewhere by the ad or whether they would have gone anyway. Um, you could try to answer those problems, and we do, and people are willing to pay for, our, for attempts to try to answer those problems, but there are always a lot of uh, caveats, and the more complicated the model gets, um, you know, the more the more you have to the more you have to worry and uh, sort of um, second guess. Maybe this answer is not meaningful. I guess I, I mean the, the more variables that that come into the equation, the more likely you are to be making a, a serious error. Um, in my view, maybe that's not maybe that's getting away from his sort of. It doesn't make sense to say that this friend is a twenty percent better friend than that friend. But mm-hmm. um, that's. Okay. That's, yeah. Let me. If, if, yeah. Let me try to take a shot at that. Okay. So, so here, I'm. I'm not. I was going to be funny and say there's a ninety percent chance Mises would agree with what I'm saying. Yeah. See, see what I did there. <laughs> um, so I, I am pretty sure that he would at least this is be close to how he would handle it. But again, um, I can't remember him specifically dealing with this sort of thing, so I'm not sure. But like when it comes to business cycle research, right? So he, you know, he did a lot of work on that, and he laid out the theory of it. And I think he would say something like, you know, let's say there's there's people in the stock market, you know, uh, hedge funds or whatever, and maybe they do technical analysis, you know. So, oh, look, at there's a head and shoulders pattern. They're looking at stock prices and they come up and maybe, you know, they do very well with that analysis. And, you know, they they have a higher return on their, you know, customer's money and blah, 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 and, and, and so forth. They got, all, you know, growing money under management. And it seems like they're pretty successful and you could see them arguing that look at this, you know, these techniques, this model that we've built has outperformed all of our peers over the last 10 years. We've hit, you know, we've beaten the market 10 years in running. And so this is the sense that we were going to say, we, you know, we understand what drives stock prices better than anybody else. And 
And I think Mises would say, you know, that that's fine. And certainly people out there in the real world have to make decisions. You have to invest, you know, so somebody's got to own corporate shares of stock and they can be guided by all sorts of different paradigms. And if they're doing better than I, Ludwig von Mises would do, that proves they're better investors than I am. And, you know, they're more entrepreneurial and, and, and so forth. But it's just, I think he would say something like, they don't actually have the true model. It's it's not the case, really, that the, quote, true thing driving stock prices is whatever model they're using, that it's possible next year there's a panic and all the stock prices drop to zero or whatever, down, down to a penny, even though their model, you know what I mean? In other words, it's not literally right. the case that they can't lose money. They might go bankrupt ne- at any moment, in which case it's, oh, wow, their model was working great up until that break point. And, you know, because human action really is not reducible to just a few variables. So I think he would say something like that. And likewise, with the stuff you're doing, I don't, you know, I, th- I don't think he would have a problem with it. I think he would just say what you're doing is market forecasting or something or consumer forecasting. That's not, um, you know, like in other words, uh, or not in other words, but for an example, uh, a Halloween shop certainly they're virtually certain they're going to do a lot more business the week before Halloween than they're going to do the week of July 4th. You know, if what they sell is like Batman costumes and stuff. But is that really like a law of human action in the same way that, you know, the, with the charge on electron or something, you know what I mean? Like it's no, it's not the same sort of thing. It could be different. It's just, we doubt that it will be. And there's lots of things that in principle could change that would, would make that Halloween store not, do a bunch of, you know, again, there could be a drought or something. There could be a flood the week before Halloween and they can't, they don't sell anything. You know, that's possible. So I think he would, we would handle it in that sort of fashion that these, this use of Bayesian inference or whatever, these statistical models using AI and whatever, that's great. And to the extent that it's successful as judged by profitability means go ahead and use it, but just don't kid yourself that you're actually uncovering some deeper, true theory of what drives human behavior. I think he would say something like that. Gotcha. From the economic perspective. Gotcha. Gotcha. There's also, I mean, there's a, there's a judgment call here. And again, I don't know if this is philosophical more than it's just judgment, but whereas, you know, if somebody is reading charts, I would say, Hey, you know, there could be, you know, the economy goes through cycles and changes. If your chart's been good for the last five years, you've been making money and you blew up the next year, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Whereas, if I built a Bayesian model to detect images to see if there's a picture of Bob Murphy in it, and every time I showed it a matrix of pixels and said, yep, that's a picture of Bob Murphy, and no, this one isn't, and it was like 99% true when it was your picture and 1% when it wasn't, I'm not worried that that's going to like stop working um, you know, after a certain period of year. Well, I guess you could change your look. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> but, and even uh, there, it, I, I, I know probably you know this is probably like a standard thing that you learn on day two of the stuff you're in, but just in case, you know, some of your listeners or if I rerun this on my show. But like my favorite thing with that is, I'm sure you've heard these, Max, the two examples of they were showing the, the AI, you know, pictures of men versus women and it thought it learned the difference. And then they showed it a picture of the Beatles and they thought they were women because they had long hair. And yeah, then, yeah, and that then another all the one time. with the um the, the military satellites and they you know having the um they trained it on showing satellite photos and like of a of a forest and in some pictures there were tanks like hidden underneath the trees and, and, and so they trained it and told it like you know they first you know, with the training sessions identified yep these pictures all have hidden enemy units hiding in the trees 
and then these ones don't. These are just clear forest, and the, the system learned, and then it went out with you know the new data, you know, out of sample test, and it did horribly. And they realized, oh shoot, the the day that we, you know, the where we took the photos with the tanks being hidden, it was a sunny day. And the day where there were no tanks, it was overcast. And so what the computer had learned was, oh, when it's sunny, you know, there's danger. And when it's overcast, it's fine. And that, of course, wasn't what they were trying to get it to learn. So even there with the, with the Bob Murphy, you're right. Like if, you know, suppose I get a tattoo or something and all of a sudden says, no, that's that's Tom Woods. Well, it wouldn't say it's Tom Woods. No, that's Dave Smith. <laughs> because it's learned that, you know, to not have a tattoo is something that's intrinsic to what the definition of Bob Murphy is. Right, right. So it, right. You, it might it might do very well up until the point when it doesn't, and then you could say, "Huh, how did it?" You know, and and like a normal man on the street would say, "Oh, see, it lacks common sense." Yeah. Oh, although you could trick people too. It's just people and machines get tricked in very different ways. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, that's what yeah. I yeah. Say, I, anyway. I should be clear. I'm not. You know, I was really into like we were talking with the girdle steers. I was all into the philosophy of mind stuff and you know Turing tests and so. I'm not even there saying that's my, I'm just saying that's what the obvious rejoinder to what you said would be. That's all I'm. Yeah. All right. I think, I I think I can wrap this up for today. This is a very good discussion. This is, I feel like in terms of podcast topics, this is at level hard, very hard, maybe (laughs) uh, in my experience, but why not go for it? Uh, I, 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 I I had a great time and I think that, um, um, what did I, I, I? There was one thing that I wanted to say to close on this. Um, I think you want uh, to urge everyone to buy my book. <laughs> what did, what's your latest book, or, or which which book are you talking about? Are you talking about the the study guide or the uh, or or you have a, a new one? I'm trying to think of which one do I make the most royalty off of to tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, if if somebody and I'll joke it. So the study guide to human action. That's a free PDF they can get you know, from the Mises, you could just Google Robert Murphy study guide, human action. You'll get that. My book choice is not free, but I, I would say that that's if, if somebody who's interested in the work of Ludwig von Mises, my book choice is, is the one uh, to get. If you want to see something more fun than Contra Krugman is probably the, the one for you where it's a collection of all my essays over the years, uh, pushing back against what I think are the very wrong columns of uh, the Keynesian Paul Krugman. Oh, that's so great. And like the second day of my undergrad economics course, and this was at Yale, they assigned a Krugman article. And I didn't, that was when I knew. (laughs) (laughs) That was when I knew. I was like, ah, I, I don't, well, I was like, I don't like this homework, I think was my first, uh, my first appointment, <laughs> my first, and then I, then, then I, then I, I realized uh, who he was. Um, yeah, no, but I, I think what I was going to say is one of the interesting things about this discussion is that, you know, there's what Mises said 80 years ago or 70 years ago now, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of what you talk about in Austrian economics and the economics profession, and there's what I talk about to solve problems from an engineering perspective, and sort of merging all of the, we all have different kind of terminology and language, and sort of merging it and contending with it, uh, the, the differences is tough, but I think that the, um, the amount of learning we'll get uh, on the other side of this is, is going to be considerable. So I just want to close by saying that I know you wrote this study guide in 2008. You've written so many topics uh, more recently. A few of the ones I want to point out are you've written a lot about healthcare and the healthcare system. You've you've written about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, climate. There was one article you had which was about a world without prisons, how we could have a world without prisons, which I really thought was an, an amazing idea. 
And so I will link to all of that. And of course, Contra Krugman, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts, your solo podcast at bobmurphyshow.com. Do you have any last thoughts in the discussion today? And is there anywhere else that uh, we can find you? Um, I, I Twitter on Bob Murphy econ. Um, no, I, I just appreciate this discussion. And yeah, at first when you told me what you want to talk about, I was thinking, wow, that's a really narrow topic. We'll be done in 12 minutes, but apparently not. I didn't even get around to answering your first question in 12 minutes. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm definitely going to continue this, uh, this discussion on the show and, um, yeah, uh, maybe we can uh, talk to each other uh, some, at some point in the future. So thanks for There's coming on the show, There's a good Bob. chance. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, are you willing to put a number on it? <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thanks for having me, Max. All right, there are so many different threads that we pulled on in this conversation. I feel like it's going to lead to lots of more episodes from me, uh, maybe even some blog posts if I ever get the the discipline to do those again. I have one blog post that I'm kind of thinking about writing for a while, but it's sort of, okay, I talked at the beginning about how, um, you know, there's uh, there's controlled experiments are the most expensive. Bayesian inference, though, is still pretty expensive. So what can you do to make good decisions and form good beliefs short of that? And that's sort of a, that's sort of one uh, uh, blog post I want to write. If you like this episode, a few others you should check out are episode 105 with mathematician Sophie Carr on her uh, her impression of Bayes' theorem, her take on Bayes' theorem. I mentioned episode 98 with Alex and Dora. He's also the host of the Learn Bayesian Statistics podcast. Definitely 78, which, my, which is my solo show on Bayesian thinking, and even more relevant, 21 and 22 on the interpretation of probability, and finally way back to zero and one on just an intro to Bayes' rule. I'll post these and more, plus all of Bob Murphy's links on the show notes at localmaxradio.com slash 107. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.